rolling. Bruh. Well, hello. New spot today. Yep. We have never recorded at East Nashville Beer Works, which is where we are right now, right off of Trinity. It's one of my favorites, actually. Yeah, just right down the road from where you currently work. That's true. Yeah. Um, so, hang on one second. You see that? See how it's clipping? Yeah. Alright, so what I need to do, I need to figure out how not to do that. Okay, well, I'm going to keep rolling because I have limited... Oh, look at that, I gained one extra bar of battery just by talking about my battery life. My okay. battery was like... <laughs> my battery was like, no, I'm good. So, alright, hopefully I don't run out of battery life. Yes, well, so I'm, I'm just going to turn this Well, and this here's the nice here. thing, at least for now, is that usually we use my audio clip for the podcast right so we have mine going we have yours now going yep all right and we haven't done the intro yet we're at east natural brew works one of my favorite spots down the street from where i work so we're all caught up uh (laughs) yes so we were talking about well we were talking about a lot of stuff because andy's got a lot of stuff in the works uh, I would say I have a lot of stuff in the works, but I just bullshit with Andy. So, what Andy was elucidating me about is this curve. This anxiety performance curve. Right. Which I kind of assumed I knew what you were talking it's about. Sort of, like, you could call it the arousal curve. Arousal curve. Right. right. And it's a sports psychology thing. Right. So, a certain amount... Like, you don't want to be asleep when you're on the field of play. Right. So, the, so it's sort of a theoretical model where you have what would be arousal I said anxiety earlier but let's call it arousal mm-hmm. arousal on the y-axis and performance on the no excuse me let me roll that back performance is on the y-axis and arousal is on the x-axis so if you're under aroused it's an it's this inverted u shape so you have this bell shaped curve if you're under aroused your performance is low as you climb up this arousal curve to a point your performance improves if your arousal continues to grow like get further and further more aroused (laughs) more anxious more aroused your performance starts to diminish right so it's this theoretical model and so typically we would talk about this arousal curve arousal performance curve with sports and so we were talking about sports earlier, but we can relate it back to fitness and training. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you mentioned, like, pre-workout jitters, for lack of a better word. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I think that there there's a sweet spot to everything, right? And too much of anything is a bad thing. Right. Right? So, I mean... And obviously this curve would look different per the individual and right. per the circumstances. And if we're going to use an example to call out the elephant in the room if we're talking about example uh if we're talking about arousal the obvious example would be too much arousal will lead to some premature (laughs) finishing and a premature (laughs) performance so what there's a sweet spot to everything so i think in training like more intensity is not always better. I think that's that's so common sense to say, but a lot of people think that the harder you work, the better, or the more amped up you are, the better. 
and I think that's a that's a, that's not the right way to to look at it because you always have to be tempered by some sort of focus. You have to be tempered by some sort of um, by some sort of equanimity. Okay. Right. So certain amount of arousal we have to get up off the couch we have to get out of bed we have to be engaged in what we're doing but at a certain point you don't want to be so jazzed up that you are lost in the jitters so to speak and that's kind of why leading it back to our conversation so many weeks ago about like jack 3d and and pre-workout supplements right that's kind of one big reason why I stopped taking pre-workout because it became just a matter of chasing this high, so to speak. Sure. And so then it was like, well, do you want to, do you actually want to train or do you just want to like pound some of this stuff and like just feel, you know, like, like you're jumping over the moon. Feel colors. Feel colors. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) See sounds and feel colors. (laughs) So, one other thing that kind of made me, um, you know, want to bring this up as a subject is because I actually went to the gym what? By, by myself. Since when? For the first time. Wait, really? Since, since the injury. I've oh, gone, really? Yeah. I've gone to the apartment gym plenty of times. Okay. You know, in, in my apartment, but I've never been to gym five. Uh, I have not been to gym five by myself since the accident. Whoa, I didn't know that. Yep. I've been there like a dozen times, probably. Yeah, I'm sure you have. Interesting. Yeah. I also don't have an apartment gym, so, like... Right. I have, right. I have the work gym, and I have the and have gym five, so I have to go somewhere. Right. So, I went in for the first time by myself, crutched my way in. I was not on scooter. I was on crutch. And, um, if anybody's curious, I walked to the water fountain... And back to that that seated the row machine, right? Yeah, um, or the the seated the seated cable row. Okay. So that's like five good steps. Okay. Five good steps there. Without the crutches. Five good steps back without the crutches. Bruh. Yeah. That's so a PR. A <laughs> it is. It is. So all this to say, it was kind of a spur of the moment decision because I was driving back from my morning appointments, and I did not have my AirPods with me. Okay. And Wait, for, so you worked out without music? Right. Oh, ah, all right. I do want to come Okay. See, I was hoping you would say that. Because <laughs> some people have to have the quote-unquote arousal of music to get their workout in. Some people is me. That's me. Yeah. And hey, like, I, I'm, I'm all about it. Like, I, I totally get it. Um, but... Can you get in just as good of a workout by generating your own? No. I'll go ahead and answer that. No. I've actually probably, because I'm not that forgetful, but in the course of the last decade of training, if my headphones, the batteries died, or I forgot them, the workout either, when they died, quickly ended after my batteries died, or I'm fairly certain there's probably one time where I was just really not mentally in it. Like, I, I was going to work out, but I really didn't want to. And then I showed up to the gym, and I didn't have my headphones, and I was like, fuck this, I'm out. Done. Not even going in. So, no, I am very much a need. Now, here's a, Gym 5 has music. 
is that that big a deal? To be fair, they do play Ozzy Osbourne, Sirius yeah. XM radio, so it's pretty great. Metallica and Pantera and shit in there, and so yeah, I can listen to that. But no, like otherwise, no, I, like music is a requisite. Like, a cup of coffee and music is the bare minimum. I, like, I say bare minimum, music. I can go without the coffee. I'm preferential to it. I don't know why I would skip it. Like a little bit of caffeine. But if I if I didn't have coffee, it's not a deal breaker. But the music almost universally is going to be a deal breaker. That's interesting. But going back to... But in part because of going back to your point about the like arousal and focus. It, nice it, it about, gets you there. Right. It gets it, you in that sweet spot. Right. The nice thing about music is I can sort of whole point is to sort of tune out the rest of the world so that I can be focused on what I'm doing. Now, I'm not necessarily like going super hard in my workout, but it keeps me focused and it keeps me intentional. I would say, I would put it that way. It's not so much that I'm going super hard in the gym, but I am very intentional about what I'm doing. Deliberate, intentional, moving weight. Right. Yeah. Well, all I would say is is that I want to be quite literally as independent from crutches as possible. Like stimuli? Right. So, even caffeine? Mm-hmm. Now, that's really hard. That is hard. It's, it's hard. But I like, will admit. Go, but, like, going back to the, the, the Jack 3D podcast, if we are coming away from the, the yesteryears of Jack 3D to get us in the zone, and you're working it backwards to just a cup of coffee to get in the zone I don't I think that's a healthy progression sure absolutely absolutely I just kind of bring all this stuff up as you know just as talking points as commentary around this idea of like the sweet spot of, of arousal and I think it's important to figure out how to do it yourself my only counter with that is and and I'm curious like once you've been in the game as long as you and I both have, not not as coaches, as trainees, mm-hmm. I'm going on 16 years, um, it's much less about arousal. In other words, I don't need to come in with a certain level of intensity mm-hmm. or I don't need to be vibing. I show up. Sure. And when I show up, stuff happens. Now, sometimes I show up and I'm vibing and great stuff happens. And sometimes I show up and I would literally rather be doing anything else, but stuff happens. So even if it's a mediocre lift, it's still a lift. And so for me, the minimum, the, the, the ground floor for me is just get in the door. Mm-hmm. Whether you've had coffee, you have music, great sleep, bad sleep, just walk through the doors and something will happen. So as far as like arousal is concerned, I'm pretty chill. Regardless of the environment, regardless, like, unless I'm doing CrossFit workouts, like in that environment where it's, it, the environment is high intensity, I am mostly chill, mm-hmm. and stuff happens. Yeah, yeah, and I would say for the most part, I am too. And I think that that is another facet of this conversation that's important for people to consider: is that you can be quote unquote chill. You can be in a relatively lower arousal state and still get in enough good training that still counts. Right. When I was relating earlier, 
I have, I have two stories as far as this arousal curve is concerned. Um, I played high school. I played lacrosse in high school and through college. And similarly, when I would show up to the field on game day, I had some teammates who, you know, scream and yelled and hollered and smacked their helmets together and jumped up in the air and like you know, just, they were very aroused. They were ready to kill people or whatever. They were they were ready. I, on the other hand, needed to come in pretty chill. I needed to come into the game and into warm-ups at a pretty low level of arousal because I was more focused there. Mm-hmm. I didn't make mistakes. My throw, my throwing and catching was sharper. My decision-making was sharper. My Even probably more of the high-intensity stuff, like hitting people, which is one of the jobs that I had as a defensive player was hit people was cleaner sharper more calculated than let's say I was over aroused then I would start making mistakes well, and then I'd get in my head and that and, we're, and as far as this curve is concerned now we're going on the other end of it where it starts to plummet where, where performance is decreasing now that I'm more anxious more aroused aware of my mistakes maybe too cautious too tense and so we kind of got over that hump and, and on the back end, on the bad side of that arousal curve where being overly aroused is where my performance started to slip. And it was hard to come back from that. It wasn't like you could just walk off on the sideline, you know, take a few deep breaths and shake it off, or at least not for me. So I had to come in at a pretty low-level, low-key, chill vibe, and I, I played my position really well. As soon as I started making mistakes and that arousal increased, then I, my performance would slip. Mm. So um, I think it's always sort of been my MO. And, and in tra- same thing, training is a much more controlled environment, though. That's what's different. Is lacrosse is a an ever-changing environment. It's high intensity, lots of bodies, lots of things going on. Like, you have to think quickly. Training is different, where you are intentional with everything that you're doing. So you don't have to really come in, like, hyped. And still get really good work in. Mm-hmm. So it sort of fits my MO. Yeah, you know, another interesting example, I think folks who are finding the sweet spot are the, you know, jujitsu enthusiasts who get high before class. You know, that's a very... I didn't know that was a thing. That's a very, very popular thing is, um, you know... Smoking whatever the kids are smoking these days. I don't know vapes, big doobies, bongs. Who knows? But but this idea of you know with with jujitsu again, like if you go in like too like hard and heavy, you're gonna burn yourself out. You're gonna get tapped out. That that whole thing. Okay. Um, so you kind of want to be a little bit loose. You want to be a little bit fluid, but you also want to be in the moment and engaged and. And in a certain kind of way, you want to be, you want your spectrum of awareness to be very, very broad. Okay. You know, you don't want to be too focused in onto, you know, what you're, you know, what you're doing, you know, as like your game plan or your drill or whatever. Because when you're live rolling, there's a large element of creativity that goes into it. So you kind of want to have, you know, quite literally an open mind. And you don't want to be too tense. So, 
um, that's a that's a very very big thing with uh, jujitsu uh, practitioners is they sometimes it's even considered like more of a performance enhancer to lower your state in a way that THC can do that will you know boost the performance and the you know experience of learning and rolling jujitsu. That's really interesting because I think the typical strategy for most people most of the time is to heighten arousal and anxiety or whatever to to deliberately drive that anxiety up like higher like caffeine jack 3d you know smashing your head into a brick wall or whatever the kids are doing these days to like get hyped up for whatever that they're doing or like uh, i think what are they they're called salts in powerlifting Smelling salts? Smelling salts. Ammonia? I imagine it's a similar thing. Yeah, where right. it's like this sort of like momentary pop to, yeah. to perform really well. And I, I kind of like the idea that jujitsu in a way kind of goes the other direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I think that taps on another sort of sports psychology thing. And I don't know how familiar with... I, I might butcher this because I didn't crack open my sports psychology books today. But um, I don't know how familiar you are with... Um, it's like a quadrant... The first quadrant is unconscious incompetence, so you don't mm-hmm. know how bad you are. Right. Then there's conscious incompetence, where you know exactly how bad you are. Right. And then there's conscious competence, where you know that you're okay against that stuff. And then there's like unconscious competence, where you don't have to think about your skill level. Right. So, and that's sort of the, I would consider that sort of mastery of whatever subject matter we're talking about, is you're very good at something without really investing a lot of mental and physical energy into being really good. Like, you've learned all the skills, you've honed them in. It's kind of like, you know, when I played lacrosse as a freshman in high school, I was hyper-focused on whether or not I could catch a ball. Right. But by the time I got to the collegiate level, I knew how to throw and catch a ball without having to watch the ball I just knew where it was going to be and I knew where my stick was as an extension of my body so someone could throw me an awful pass like at my crotch between my legs behind my back and I could snag it without really thinking about it I mean I had to do some you know physical gymnastics to get there but my physical gymnastics and my stick skills in the moment when a ball is coming at you at 60 miles an hour you're not thinking about it you just do and that's sort of that unconscious competence part. Now, I mean, I played club-level collegiate lacrosse, so I'm not trying to make it sound like I was playing for Yale or whatever we were talking about the other day. <laughs> but still, the, the right. same the same skills apply. It, it's the same as, like, strength training. I'm sure for a lot of people who are starting off a strength training program, that first day you probably don't know how bad you are at stuff. And maybe that second week you're acutely aware of how bad you are at stuff. And maybe that second month you're you know starting to get pretty skilled but like it takes some like mental clarity mental focus to like dial it in and then maybe you got let's say five ten years under your belt or whatever and you go in and it's not like you have to like really think about your bench press technique because you've done it a thousand times i mean you might think about it a little bit but for the most part your body probably dials it in without really thinking about it same with like at least maybe sub-maximal deadlifts sub-maximal squats I mean, there might be a subtle tweak here and there, but you don't have to really think about 
your squat technique because you've dialed it in over thousands of reps. Right. And I think as an aside, as a tangent to this conversation, this is what's so important about doing the same things over and over and over again, even if they are boring and routine, is you develop this skill practice, this unconscious competence. And once you've got those skills, sure, we can move on to other stuff. Or we can do a lot of different stuff, but we should probably revisit a lot of the same exercises like squats, deadlifts, presses, or whatever, so that we can develop this competence in these lifts. And then as far as strength and mass or fat loss or whatever, it's just a matter of scale. Right. Yeah. Yeah, man. I, uh, I don't think we need to belabor the point, but I think this umbrella of finding like the sweet spot of performance, the sweet spot of learning and training um, can go in a lot of different directions. Do you want to hear a, f a funny one? Please. So in real life, this plays out, this curve that we're talking about plays out in real life when I bowl. Mm. Because here's what happens is I don't bowl very often. Like very routine bowler. So I'm not a great skilled bowler. That first game, and this is less about arousal, but more about performance. That first game, I'm still like working on my technique or whatever. Still like trying to re, kind of remember like my my stride and how I step and how I sling that ball and like what I'm focusing on, my eyes or whatever. So that first game, my performance is not it's not terrible, but it's not great. And then I add a couple beers in there. Right. By the second game. I'm sort of dialing in that routine, that technique or whatever. I'm a little bit loose because I've had a couple beers, so my performance increases. That third game is probably my best one. So dialed it in, <laughs> having a good time, drinking a couple beers. That fourth game and that fifth game, that performance has to go back down. Way down. Actually, usually it's a, it's a plummet after right. that third game. Right. It's a straight shot down. And, and whether that's the beer or, or probably the beer. Or I just don't care anymore. Or, or, or maybe I'm just getting tired. Maybe I'm not built. I'm fatigued from play, from mm -hmm. bowling 30 frames already. So, I don't know. Maybe it's fatigue. Maybe it's beer. Probably the beer. But that performance, you can literally see it in my scores. If I were to plot my scores, games one through five, it would be this inverted U shape. Right, right. <laughs> I was thinking the exact same thing. I will, I mean, I haven't bowled in a long time, but normally I would bowl three games one was kind of touch and go two was always the best right two was like <laughs> wow where did that strike come from and then like by the tail end of three like you're trying really hard yeah and you're kind of like why you know because because when you're used to bowling a couple like strikes in a row and then you bowl a gutter ball right you're like what the hell right and then you start getting too tense I think this is. I think bowling is probably a great example for what we're talking about because most yeah. people have bowled, and most people know what it feels like to bowl a strike or double strike. And here's where the anxiety part comes in because, like, I want that turkey. I want oh, that yeah. turkey. <laughs> and then, if you're a great bowler, one of my clients, Aaron, is a great bowler, so he's probably bowled a thousand turkeys. I have only ever bowled like a handful of turkeys in my entire air quotes career of bowling and that's that's three strikes, three strikes on the in a row. 10th frame no this is three strikes in a row oh 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 okay right got it so three strikes in a row is a turkey right it, right everyone okay. knows probably a lot of people know that feeling of bowling that first strike and the, the excitement yeah and that arousal <laughs> and bowling that second strike 
and that excitement and that arousal and you know that turkey's on deck and you blow it it maybe not every time but there's a i'm sure plenty of people know that feeling yep. of yep i got a turkey on the line here and you throw Oh, like a, you knock one pin down. Mm-hmm. It's not even a gutter ball, which which would be insulting. Yep. But like you don't, you somehow went from throwing bullseyes to hitting one pin. Yep. You're like, oh, well, it doesn't matter. But yeah, every I think bowling is probably a great example of of what we're talking about as far as like arousal performance curve is considered, because most everybody knows exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. Well, it's actually funny um, you mentioned that because. Um, this audiobook that I'm almost finished with is called um, The Mindful Athlete Secrets to Pure Performance by George Mumford, who was the mindfulness coach to the Bulls, Chicago Bulls, oh, yeah. back in the day. So he worked with uh, obviously the Michael Jordan Chicago Bulls, and I think he worked with the Lakers. I think him and Phil Jackson were, were tight. So he goes into a lot of these concepts in, in this book. Um, and, you know, there's also, it's funny, there's there's two books with the same title, Mastery. There's Mastery by Robert Greene. I've read most of Mastery. And then there's Mastery by, I believe it's George Leonard, if I'm not mistaken. And I actually just started that one. Um and they all, I mean, certainly much more like Mindful Athlete kind of goes right in line with what we're talking about here. But um, this whole idea of this journey to unconscious incompetence. Unconscious competence. I'm sorry. I'm still stuck at unconscious incompetence. <laughs> <laughs> because apparently for me... The limit is one, one and, and three, one and three quarters <laughs> beers. Dude, I am such a lightweight. I am such a lightweight. Yeah, and it's funny. Woo. Um, so this journey to unconscious competence very much rides. It, it depends on your ability to ride this arousal wave to sure. where you're engaged, but not too over aroused right and where you can find the sweet spot to where you know as well that's probably another book that kind of falls in line with this is uh flow um guy has a really long name that i won't even try to pronounce right now but that book and that set of principles very much goes in line with this like there's a sweet spot to performance there's a sweet spot to learning there's a sweet spot to training um, and you know, I mean, hey, the uh, the uh, the ancients have taught us this through the very simple and very profound yin yang symbol. Mm. So there's got to be elements of both to create the whole. Huh, I like that. Or you know, as old Yoda would say, do or do not. There is no try. There is no try. <laughs> That's a pretty good end to that segment, I think. I think yeah, we man. can leave it at that. For sure. Um, all right, what, do you want to move on to the second one? Let's do. So, I was, I don't know, I don't even remember why I thought about this girl. Oh, I do remember. Leah, hi Leah, she listens to the podcast. A um, couple weeks back, Leah and I were deadlifting, trap bar deadlifting, and we got a little heavy, and 
on rep number six, I thought that looked great. And on rep number seven is when I said, that's plenty. And she sort of hesitated on rep seven because I was sort of stopping her, sort of energy, whatever. And she might have tweaked her back a little bit. And so I've been given an update by her PT about how she's feeling. And so I think she's a little nervous about it, mm-hmm. about a hip hinge pattern, a dead, trap bar, barbell deadlift. So tomorrow when I see her, we are going to RDL instead because mm-hmm. by virtue of the exercise, it's going to be lighter. So... So she's a little nervous about trap bar dead. Now she is very strong, and we will get back there. I am not worried. To about To be fair, her. Leah, I would be nervous about trap bar deadlifting or any sort of deadlifting with Andy Van Gridsven. Yeah, I'm playing fast and loose over here. It's the Wild West in that gym. <laughs> I would be double checking your bicep tendon. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I don't, I don't blame you for yeah. uh, you know when Andy says stop on a deadlift rep. Or a deadlift set, you better listen to him. Well, he, and here's he, the thing. he found out the hard way. Right, and here's the thing is like rep number seven probably would have been fine. Rep number six was a slight grinder, and I'm like you probably, we don't need grinders. Right. Rep number six was a slight grinder. Rep number seven would have been one, probably. Maybe. I don't know. I never got to see it like flesh out. But it's one of those like we don't need to see number seven. Like right. leave it right. in the tank. So that was my fault because I I mistimed my coaching. Um, and she'll be fine, and we'll get back to it or whatever. But it sparked this conversation about exercises that we as trainees are nervous to do, personally, mm-hmm. and exercises that we won't do with our clients. Right. And, and and why? I mean, there's not like a, well, I don't know, let's flush this out. So, exercises, let's start with exercises we won't do personally. Um, and the only one that I can think of... I can talk about CrossFit, because I don't like butterfly pull-ups or whatever, kipping pull-ups. Right. I, I'm not a fan. I don't really see the point, other than being really good at kipping pull-ups. And I don't give a shit about my kipping pull-up ability, so I do strict, and they don't care. That's the beauty of the CrossFit gym that I work out in, is that I don't want to learn how to do kipping pull-ups. I don't see the value in it. I have busted shoulders, and so I don't right. do them. I just do pull-ups. They don't bust me up about it. Hand, same thing with handstand push-ups. I have cranky shoulders. They often have handstand push-ups in the program. I modify. And I don't feel bad about it because it's my body, my workout. I can do whatever I want. That is something that I tell my clients, too. If there's anything that we're doing in our workout that you hate or you don't want to do or disagrees with you, we don't have to do it. Right. Just because I've programmed it doesn't mean that I'm married to that program. Be like, well, you're shit out of luck because we're going to barbell overhead press. Sorry. I know you hate it, but we're going to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. Like, no, we don't have to do anything you don't want to do or anything yep. that makes you uncomfortable or anything that makes you feel silly. Like, right. There are plenty of alternatives. So at least in CrossFit, there are a number of exercises like kipping pull-ups, handstand push-ups that I won't do because it bugs my shoulders and or I just don't see the inherent value as a never going to pe- compete in CrossFit kind of guy. Right. Um, the only one that I can think of that is more in line with what I like to do are parallel bar dips. And again, it goes back to my shoulder history. It just It's an exercise that I, I like, but it doesn't like me back. And so sure. if I do them, I dose them sparingly. I do really enjoy them. but And not always, but sometimes they bust me up a little bit. And so I have to be careful about the dose. But otherwise, I might think of another one. But mm-hmm. probably barbell overhead press. No, I, I don't, I'll do those. Same thing. I'll use them sparingly. Yeah. All right, some that you are personally nervous about. 
Well, mostly the same. Mostly the same. Um, you know, it's funny. I I don't think I've strict barbell military pressed since maybe that one workout with you, me, Aaron, and Jack. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that one. That was one. probably in January. Yeah, that was because we went... What was that one? We it were was doing like strict overhead press. And then we did reverse lunge. It was the deficit kettlebell rack deficit reverse lunge into yep. the GHD. Yep. That was a good little. That was, that was a great workout. Yeah. That was a good little set. Um, so, yeah, my shoulders are fine, but they've been through enough where I'm a little, you know cautious on a lot of things Hesitant, yeah yeah and and i just know that in general if you can have independence of arms you know left to right um that tends to just work better for my shoulders and it tends to be a safer option for clients so when you say independent like dumbbells kettlebells yeah even if you're pressing at the same time even if you're doing like double kettlebell double uh dumbbell press just by just by virtue of being able to go from this supinated to pronated wrist position sure. in your pressing, I think goes a long way. And just the micro differences left between right. left and right scat mechanics, I think, is is very important to to consider. Um, we were talking about how I was really strong and really hitting strides in my training towards the tail end of last year right <clears throat> before this uh before this before uh, ski that, accident yeah. <laughs> um and and the only barbell pressing that overhead pressing that i was doing was uh like push press so i think push press you can kind of get away with a little bit more because you kind of push and use momentum through that really tricky part yeah, the that, first half. Yeah, that, yeah. I mean, the first half is really where it's most tricky, right? Because it's all on that anterior delt. So I can get away with push pressing a little bit better, like with a barbell, but I do prefer independent free weight overhead press. See, I would argue differently. I would say that if I'm going to barbell press, I would rather be strict and go lighter intensity. Because with the what, what in theory with the push press, we're talking about. 85, 90%, that little dip and drive, for like sets of like one to three, right? Ish. Sure, yeah. Yeah. So it's about power production. It's about how fast you can get from that sort of rack position to overhead. Right? With a push press? Well, I or suppose. Is that, that, am, I, am I mixing in my push press and my jerk? Well, I think, I think either of those are fine. I think if you're coming from an Olympic lifting school, I think you're definitely right. I am definitely not. I'm coming from a, I'm coming from a upper body, like an old school upper body strength okay. standpoint. So like, basically, how can I overload my shoulders in a safe way? Okay. Is the way that I'm thinking Right. Well, and we're also not sitting here trying to debate which one's better. Sure. This is personal preference. Well, also, probably most, most people probably don't need a push press. I probably don't need a push press. Right. For that matter. The only reason that I would like a almost strict military press is because by virtue of that, and let's, let's say a strict military press, so slow, deliberate technique. I say slow, not really slow, deliberate technique. 
And then if I say, like, uh, if the intensity is no heavier than what I can do for eight reps, because it's something I can manage, work through range of motion, control, it ends up being a little bit more favorable for my shoulders. So I would almost rather go volume, like eight plus range, and super strict technique on something like a barbell press. Now, dumbbells, like if I want to do like a split jerk with dumbbells, I'd probably do that. Because I can stay neutral-ish in the grip. That's interesting. I don't know if I've ever seen a dumbbell split jerk. In theory, you could clean, let's say, I don't know, 75 pound dumbbells into the rack position and split jerk out of that. It's a 150 pound split jerk. It's not really all that bad. But again, like for me and my shoulders specifically, that level of speed and tempo, I don't like for my, my reconstructed shoulder actually does fairly well with it. My debatably needs reconstruction shoulder does not. I don't like right. that fast, powerful movement because I think that I might have an energy leak somewhere in that movement. And right. I'm worried that it's going to make my already somewhat compromised shoulder a little bit worse. Yeah. So at least in terms of strict overhead pressing, I'd rather be strict and light and deliberate or whatever. But mm-hmm. again, we're not ta- we're not debating the dip- like which one's better. Just personal preferences of things that we like and we don't like. Yeah. And I mean to be sh- to be fair, you've had shoulder surgery. Right. I've tweaked my shoulders certainly more than a few times, but my perspective for how I feel overhead is fundamentally different from yours. Right. Yeah. So so there's that. So that leading into the whole Olympic lifting conversation, like I think I've mentioned before, I went through a period of time where I actually had an Olympic weightlifting coach, and I was specifically working on the techniques. I feel like I got the techniques down. I, I, I think I was flirting with conscious incompetence. I, I'm probably the same. I was flirting with knowing why I sucked. Right. Right. <laughs> Mostly, I didn't know why I sucked, but a little bit I was getting into knowing why I was terrible. Um, but I quickly realized that for myself and for the people that I worked with, cliche thing that I say, the juice was not worth the squeeze. Right. Of hours and hours of technique practice for stuff that was cool but at least at the time and at least up until this point in time i really don't i i really i still don't think the risk versus reward the time investment is worth it um, for me and the people that i work with right now so olympic lifting is something that i completely am am hands off on the funny thing that you should mention that um let me address the elephant in the room for about for what I'm about to say. You can probably find research that supports or um, uh, uh, the, sort of the other side of that. The flip side of Defutes? Uh, de- is that the word? Defutes? Refutes. Refutes. <laughs> you are too beautiful. I was like, bro, <laughs> defutes is not a word. Right. So you can probably find literature that supports or refutes a certain position. When I was working at the collegiate weight room at Tennessee on the women's side, because at the time they were split between men's and women's, I was on the women's side. We worked with, I worked with um, the volleyball players and a few basketball players. So people who need to be able to jump. Right, right. Who need to be able to get vertical, right? So let me preface all this with 
these are collegiate athletes who need to have vertical jump numbers that are great. So a very specific niche of who we're talking about. Most of us don't compete in sports, so our verticals are largely irrelevant. And chasing a vertical jump at 33 years old in whatever, 200, 200, 185 pounds, like, what am I doing? Like, there's no reason to chase down vertical jump numbers. Sure. All that said, part of this, the stipulation with my internship was that we had all this literature that we had to read, like a binder full. It was something on the order of, like, five to seven articles a week of literature that we used to justify the decisions that we were making in the weight room. Mm. Um, and, and I'll come back to that here in a second. A lot of the literature that we were reading did not support the idea that Olympic lifting um, improved vertical jump height per se. Hmm. So, it, and to your point, um, and I won't get into the details. For anybody who doesn't know what Olympic lifting is, you can go look at it, like on YouTube or whatever. But Actually, you can tune in to Olympic lifting this summer at the Olympic Games. Oh, there you go. All right, so let's say the clean. Is the most obvious one where the bar goes, the, the power clean goes from the floor and you sling it up into the rack position. Power clean. Maybe from there you go to the jerk. But the idea of Olympic lifting is what's called triple extension, which is um, ankle extension, knee extension, and hip extension in a very explosive manner to try to move an ass load of weight from the ground to the rack position. In theory, it would also help your vertical jump because when you jump vertically, you have ankle extension, knee extension, and hip extension. The problem is, is that the literature doesn't really support that assertion mm. that Olympic weightlifting actually improves vertical jump hmm. height. Even if it did, it might be minimal. And even that said, that takes a lot of skill acquisition to get to a point where Olympic lifting is going to improve your vertical jump in any meaningful metric, right? So not only are you coming in, having to learn a new exercise you may may be familiar with, but you're not great at, really have to hone in the technique, then you got to add load. We're talking about months of practice and load and practice and load to try to gain an outcome that we aren't guaranteed to get. Right. So what we did instead was the Vertimax, which mm, was literally right. just a platform where you wore a belt and you had like bungee cords yeah. strapped to you and then you just jump. You load the actual pattern. You load the actual pattern. So yeah. if you need to jump, you jump. And, and this is important because uh, in terms of, of sports patterning, taking a barbell from the ground to the rack position does not look like a rebound. Right. Does not look right. like, you know, slap or like hitting a volleyball. Right. does not look like any of those things. Yep. So Olympic lifting is cool if you're an Olympic athlete, but its application to sport or sport performance improvement is debatable. Yeah. In other words, if if it takes me six months to get you to power clean an appreciable amount of weight, or I can get you jumping higher and faster right now by using a Vertimax, I'm going to use the tool that gets the job done faster and looks most closely like the skill that I need for the sport. Yeah, I could see me getting into Olympic lifting if I, like, lived in relative solitude 
and I had nothing but like a garage and a bar and a platform and plates, I could see myself like, okay, I could take the time and focus to like learn this art, this sport. Sure. Because it is a sport and a practice in and of itself. Right. Which and, I think is super cool. Right. And to that point, yeah, I, I appreciate Olympic lifting. Olympic lifting is amazing. It. It's an amazing thing. But I almost put it in the same categories like gymnastics. Like doing you know, doing the flips and tricks on the on the bar. You know, I forget what that event is called. I don't remember, but yeah, you know. I know what you're talking about. But like, that's all amazing, and it's like, wow! If I had the time and the energy and the focus to put into something like that, could you build your strongest, healthiest body? Probably, it would be a long road to hoe. Right. But it would be a it would be a lane to go in. Same kind of thing like with Olympic lifting. Like, if you have the time and energy to dedicate to the constraints, to the techniques, it's amazing. But I quickly realized, like, for myself, and again, like, as a coach, this isn't something that I can half-ass. Sure. I'm not going to half-ass coach a barbell clean or a snatch or a clean and jerk or any of the techniques. So I kind of just had to be honest and be like, this is just something that I'm not going to do right now and I may never do. Sure. You know? But that's not to say that, like, I'm taking away from the fact that, like, Olympic lifting can make you jacked. It can sure. get you super mobile. It it could maybe in a way be a whole training, you know, self-contained training uh, methodology in and of itself to build a healthy, resilient body. Sure. But you're you're in for you're in for a lot. I I, I would argue it this way. In in terms of all of the tools that we have to get jacked, build muscle, burn calories. I would actually put uh, Olympic lifting probably way on down the list of tools that we can use. Sure. Now, with three stipulations. If you're an Olympic athlete, obviously you're going to be doing Olympic lifts. If you're a CrossFit athlete, it behooves you to be pretty good at Olympic lifting. And if you really want to learn, then great. Like, We've talked about this in the podcast, and I think this might be a good segue to exercises that we won't coach our clients for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. But Olympic lifting is one of those for me that I won't coach because unless they really specifically ask for it, in which case I'm decent enough to coach them through like getting them started. And then if they really want to take it a step further, I would refer out because it's just not my wheelhouse. Right. Um, but in, again, in terms of like building the most muscle, getting super jacked, whatever, we have a million other tools that we can tap into before Olympic lifting would ever be on the top of my list. Right. Hey, like it, it's way on down there. I think it's cool and I think it's fun to learn. Um, and I've even done some stellar CrossFit workouts that included Olympic lifting. Um, but it wasn't about moving the most amount of weight. It was reps. Right. And, and, and really moving fast. It was about moving fast than anything. Right. So the, the weight was pretty low. And even then, the whole idea of powerlifting is to move a lot of weight very quickly, like once. I was doing cleans for like sets of 11. Do you like my hair today? I do like it. I washed it. I like your hair I, every day. Andy. I had a meeting, so I took a shower in the middle of the day. Um, anyway, 
But yeah, like the, the point of Olympic lifting would be to maximize the amount of weight that you move from point A to point B. When you're in CrossFit, that's not the point. The point is to move a submaximal weight a lot of times. And so technique probably goes out the window. It's not really all that heavy. You know, it's just, it's not the point of the, the workout. It's not about being dialed in to a clean. It's about doing a lot of cleans in a short period of time. So just know what you're getting into. Yep. It doesn't have to, if, you, if you're looking for the perfect application, you're not going to find it in CrossFit. It's just not the MO of CrossFit. And that's fine. I like their music today. A lot of throwbacks. It is a lot of throwbacks, but um, but all right. So segue, Olympic lifting would be one of these things that I don't coach my client. Right, let me preface this with, and I'm you're probably the same. Neither of us are really going to gatekeep any of our clients. We're never going to be like you can't clean. Sure. If you want to learn how to clean, I will teach you how to clean. But if you're kind of on the fence about it, and you're like, well, what about? I'm going to be honest and be like, well. For the amount of time investment and what we might get out of it, I'm not sure it's a great use of our time. Now, right. if it's something you really want to learn and you really want to hammer down on, I can get you started. And again, I'll probably refer you to somebody who's very skilled in those lifts, and I'm not one of those people. But I'll be honest and say, look, as cool as these exercises are, I don't think it's going to drive these adaptations that you... It's not going to... not really fall in line with your goals. Right. You're going to burn a lot of calories, build a lot of muscle, reduce your injury risk. I, I just don't see where the power clean really is one of the primary exercises that we need to do. And mm -hmm. so it's one that I'm less likely to coach. Yep. 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 Well, you know, I mean, uh, one thing that I have planted my flag in the ground with is uh, the kettlebell snatch. I'm the kettlebell guy, right? And everybody is enamored with a snatch. And I think it's a valuable lift to pursue. But, like, I don't think it offers... Again, it just goes back to, is the juice worth the squeeze? The risk versus reward. Like, you can, you can swing and press, push press, jerk, Turkish get up. You can get that hip extension and the upper body, you know, the overhead lockout, bringing them together, like you just have to be, look, you have to be willing to like suffer some, some torn calluses. Right. You have to be willing to suffer some bruised forearms. You have to be, you have to be willing to go through many sessions, potentially even many months before like the kettlebell snatch like really clicks. And again, the snatch comes from the Olympic lifting tradition of taking right. a weight from the ground to overhead in one motion. And it's not for everybody. So, like, if you're into it, it's it's worth pursuing in the sense that, like, you know, it's worth having, it's, it's worth going for the overhead stability, the overhead mobility and strength. It's worth going for the hip extension strength. Um, but when you bring all these things together in a very skill-heavy lift, whew, like it's 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 going to take a lot of work. Like even for the most natural athlete, right? It's going to take it's going to take some some bumps and bruises. And if you're willing to go through that, I'm more than willing to help you do so because I can shorten that learning curve as good as anybody. Right. But again, for the average Joe or Jane. 
is it worth the the torn calluses, the bloody hands, the bruised forearms? Is it worth like again, but this difference again, but make this adjustment again, but this and that and the other thing? Right. Do you have the patience? Do you have the you know the wherewithal to be? Well, you know, again, another thing is a lot of people who just want to you know gun it and do kettlebell snatches may also not be in the mindset of dialing themselves back and saying like let me stop my set here so that i can practice more efficiently tomorrow mm. or the next week well and that can be applied to anything applied to anything right. so i mean the, the last thing that i ever want to see is a bloody kettlebell handle right and unfortunately it happens <laughs> we, unfortunately we see that more often than not when people get a little too gung-ho with uh, with snatches so, um, yeah, unless somebody's like super duper into it, I don't even consider the kettlebell snatch as part of my like standard training curriculum. Right. Well, and, and I think this is, this is like a side tangent to what we're talking about. This is what makes like a, a qualified coach is being qualified enough to, to teach things, to teach snatches and cleans and whatever. And then deciding whether or not it's a use, it's useful for the time that we're allotted for the person that we're working with. It's cool stuff. And again, we would never gatekeep anybody, but like, if we have a limited amount of time to try to achieve a certain goal, it's on us as coaches to say, hey, we have all these tools, and eight of them are safe, effective, easier to learn, the learning curve is smaller, will get you your goals and two are they're cool they're fun but they're just not as appropriate for you as an individual and your goal set unless you specifically ask for it right. i think that's the difference between the, like a seasoned qualified coach and just any run-of-the-mill coach is saying hey i could teach you these things and if you really want to go down that road we will but i don't think it's something that we ought to spend a lot of time on because of x y and z reasons that we've been talking about so Jurassic Park teaches us a few very key lessons. I feel like you've quoted Jurassic Park before. Okay, what's, what's the lesson? Well, as Dr. Ian Malcolm would say, they were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think whether or not they should. Oh! I feel like either that's the title of this podcast or the end of this podcast. I think it's got to be the end. Oh, all right. <laughs> it should be the end. All right. Yeah. So, again, coulds versus shoulds. I mean, hey, the human body, you could do anything. You could do a lot. You know, Alex Honnold, you could scale El Capitan at, at Yosemite without ropes. Which, yeah. But should you? <laughs> should you? I mean, yeah. Yeah, that's um, that's a whole other conversation. Okay, God, that was a good one today. Yeah, man. Yeah. Well, Andy, anything else? No, not right now. I, hopefully, by this time next week, I'll have more updates on Jim's stuff. But I, it, you know, it's moving. Cool, man. Yeah, exciting times. Well, Andy and Zach signing off. A to Z, no BS. We will see you next time. Bye, guys.